0: there and welcome to our show the shit no one tells you about writing i'm bianca Murray and i'm joined by carly waters and cc lira from ps literary agency
1: hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause menopause or post menopause It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of Hormone Harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, hormone harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit, feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for hormone harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the Acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W, at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com. Calling all
0: memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup Today's guest is the Boston-based author of The Last Beekeeper and Waiting for the Night Song, named a most anticipated 2021 novel by CNN, Newsweek, USA Today, Parade, and others, and an Amazon editor's pick for best books of the month, A Bread Loaf, Tin House and Grub Street novel incubator alum, she is a frequent speaker on the topic of fiction in the age of climate crisis at universities, conferences, libraries and museums. Her writing has appeared in Chicago Review of Books, Orion, Newsweek, The Boston Globe, Electric Literature, Lit Hub and other publications. When she isn't writing, you can usually find her digging in her garden, skiing, kayaking or walking her dogs. It's our pleasure to welcome back Julie Carrick-Dalton. Julie, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you again. Yeah, your last episode that you did with us, for any of our new listeners, go back and find that interview. Julie gave so many amazing insights with regards to how you can get your work as polished as possible without spending a ton of money before you go out on submission. And that was an extremely, extremely popular episode. Tons of people wrote in and said how much they appreciated those insights. So we're particularly happy to have Julie back. Now, Julie, before we begin, could you tell just tell our listeners about your newest book, which came out in March, called The Last Beekeeper? Yeah, thank you for asking. So The Last Beekeeper, it's my second
2: novel, and it's a near future story. It's set in just a smidge in the future. It's not, a, it's not an unrecognizable future, no weird technology or anything, but it's about a beekeeper and his daughter, Sasha, as the world's pollinator population collapses, And when we lose our pollinators, it sends us into an agricultural and food security crisis. So it's about Sasha navigating that crisis with her father, who is infamously known as the last beekeeper in the United States. And their relationship is strained by as the bees die. And I tell this story in two timelines. When Sasha is an 11 year old girl, she lives on the farm with her father, who she adores. They keep bees. It's very idyllic. You know, she runs around in the woods and they garden. And then her father goes to prison for reasons that are somewhat mysterious. This is not a spoiler. You'll know this in the first chapter of the book. But her father goes to prison, so she's set adrift in the foster system, in the state system. In the second timeline, Sasha's a 22-year-old. And she finally gets the courage to return back to that farm where she believes her father hid some research that would explain why he went to prison. And more importantly, if Sasha herself had played a role in the collapse of that last bee colony. So there's some big questions. But when she gets to the house to look for the research, she finds it occupied by squatters, which is very dangerous in this kind of anarchy, you know, dystopian kind of world. So she approaches the squatters and ends up Uh, kind of forming a family with them. Like she finds a, a new chance to find love and to be loved and to live in this broken world with these new squatters. But then she has to decide if she wants to risk looking for this research that could upend and risk this whole family she's built. And, you know, deciding is the past more important or is the future more important and how does she reconcile that? And she ends up having to make some decisions that you know either risk her life, her friend's lives, or maybe could save the world. So there's really high stakes. So it's a big, the backdrop is grim. You know, it's this dystopian world where we've lost the pollinators, which means a third of our food. But it's a really hopeful story focused on one person's journey and their like relentless and radical hope for this world.
0: I love that. And I just want to pick your brain a bit about those dual timelines, because the important thing for our listeners to remember is when you begin a story, you need to decide if you're going to have flashbacks to the past or if you're going to have two completely different timelines. Now, if your book is so dependent, if your present day story is so dependent on what happened in the past, then you don't want the book to be constant flashbacks, in which case you are going to do a dual timeline narrative. But here's the most important thing, is that both of those stories need to have story forward plot. You cannot have the backstory or the past timeline just being like, oh, la la la, this is a whole bunch of exposition so that you understand what is happening in the present day storyline. It needs to be as compelling as the present day storyline. So how did you tackle that, Julie? That's a great question because I, I didn't do it well the first time in
2: the first draft. I tried to write this story as a linear story, linear chronology, started when she was a child and moved into her adulthood. And I found the middle section of the book wasn't working that there's the time when she's 11 and a timeline when she's 22 and the years in between didn't matter. So then I'm left with these two chunks of time with a gap in the middle, and I was advised by my agent. She's like, "This is a, a dual timeline story. You need to you need to interweave these." And my editor supported that idea because I did try it with flashbacks, as you mentioned, and it was very heavy in the flashbacks. And I I do have two solid arcs. Like the childhood timeline, when she's eleven, has its own arc. There's a mystery within that arc alone. And then there's a plot and a mystery within the adult timeline. And they're speaking to each other. And why I think this works in The Last Beekeeper is because the two timelines are in conversation with each other. We all know as human beings, memory is fallible, right? We don't always hold our memories... The way they actually happened. So for Sasha, my main character, in her adult line, she is revisiting her childhood memories the same time that the the reader is because she's seeing them differently now. She's back in this old home and she's questioning her memories. So I'm giving the reader her childhood timeline and pacing it with the way she's understanding that timeline in her adult life, if that makes sense. So they're really talking to each other and her memories are evolving along with the um, reader's understanding of her
0: childhood. I love that you struggled with that as well because that's exactly what happened with my first novel that got published, Hum If You Don't Know The Words. My initial version of that book spanned four decades and I had to write the whole thing to realize that what was really interesting was a year and a half of her childhood and then later in her life. Now, I could have done the dual timeline thing if I wanted to. I wasn't as skilled a writer then and it didn't even occur to me. So what I did instead was take out 60,000 words and just focus on her as a child. So for our listeners, if you are stuck with a muddling middle in terms of a story that is spanning many decades or quite a few years, Say to yourself, are you going to just focus on one period of time or are you going to do those alternating timelines? Because I really think I could have fixed that novel by doing that, but I didn't know enough then and it really didn't even occur to me. Something else here that's important is Julie, I'm assuming that you wrote Sasha in the third person because to try and write an 11 year old in the first person. And then try and write her as 22 in the first person would be incredibly jarring because her voice would be entirely different. So, was that ever a consideration? when you sat down to write, or was it just like, nope, this is going to be third person? It always
2: came out in third person. I've never written anything in first person. I I can admire it when other people do it well, but it is not something, maybe I just haven't met a character yet whose voice I want to inhabit in the first person point of view. But yeah, it was never, actually, I never even thought about it. They were always third person, very close third person, and their voices even in third person are unique. Like you said, an 11-year-old and a 22-year-old have a different perspective and a different vocabulary, but they still have similarities between them, which I think maybe is a little
0: easier to pull off in a third person. So again, for our listeners, if you have one character and it's spanning a period of time, remember that when it comes to point of view, you're not just going, oh, I, I prefer first person, I prefer third person. You need to be very strategic when you are deciding on point of view. And this is an instance in which... To do an 11-year-old's voice in the first person and then to do a 22-year-old's voice in the first person for the same character would be very jarring for the reader. So approach that in a very strategic manner kind of way. Okay, so moving on from that, Julie, so a question I get a lot from emerging writers is, I have so many ideas, and this has a great hook, and then I begin writing it, but then I have another idea, and I kind of get bored of the first idea, and then I begin writing it, and there's many writers out there who've got a ton of stories they've begun, but they haven't finished them, and I always say to them, the stories that I have finished are the ones that I feel most passionate about, that it's about topics that keep me up at night, that cause me anxiety, that make me want to yell at people at the Thanksgiving table, etc. And I think you and I are aligned in this because while I write from a place of rage, you write from a place of fear. So can we talk a bit about that? Yeah,
2: this is exactly how I feel. I've often thought of my my novels as manifestations of my own climate anxieties, because all of my books, they deal with human relationships in the foreground, but in the background, there's always some element of climate crisis. My first book was called Waiting for the Night Song, and it dealt with um, rising temperatures in New Hampshire and how it affected the agricultural region in New Hampshire. And then, of course, The Last Beekeeper is about The loss of our pollinators. And I have two new books under contract with McMillan that, again, they all, both of them deal with a different element of climate crisis, always with human relationships, you know, fractured, complicated characters in the foreground. But it's because I uh, have a background in agriculture and beekeeping. And the more research I was doing in agriculture, I was learning about how in New Hampshire, where my growing region, the temperature had gone up four degrees in the summer over the past century, and that's very disproportionate to the rest of the world. And it meant that we have a 22-day longer growing season in New Hampshire than we did a century ago, which just three weeks longer. That affects what crops thrive in New Hampshire and what crops no longer thrive. It affects drought conditions. We generally have a good, good water resources in New Hampshire, but it's more strange than it used to be. And our trees, like our forests are changing. And we think of New Hampshire as this iconic maple image of the maple trees on fire, and, you know, in color in the fall, we're losing maple trees in New Hampshire. They're moving north because of rising temperatures. So these are the things that keep me awake at night and I can't not think about them. So they work their way into my fiction and I allow my characters to tackle the problems that I'm thinking about. And it gives me a way to, you know, take the thing I'm scared of. I'm also a beekeeper and I lost two colonies of bees twice, 40,000 bees in each colony in a single day. And it was devastating to me. And when I started understanding why it happened, that was my new fear. So that was my new book. My next book is about deforestation, which I also have some experience with. So I take the fear that I have, the thing I'm thinking about when I go to sleep at night and I give it to a character and I let them play out the what if scenario that's buzzing around in my mind when I try to go to sleep at night. And there are different characters in the story and they react differently to my fears. Some of them are very brave in ways I wish I were. Some of them have solutions that I wish I had. Some of them crumble. Some of them like fall apart under the, the anxiety. So for me, it's like it's like a very cheap form of therapy that I can write these different possibilities for how different people would tackle my fear. And it gives me a little bit of power over my fear. I think it lets me imagine a way to be better in this world to do better in this world to be more like sasha sasha is a very brave character in the last beekeeper and i want to be more like sasha there's a character in waiting for the Night Song, a young 13 year old girl named sal who is just so bold and brave like i wish i'd been when i was 13 so i want to be more like sal so it gives me creating these characters gives me hope that i won't succumb to my own fears i guess do you have that experience at all like when you talk about with the rage do you let your characters take some of that for you
0: Oh, yeah, a hundred percent, and they often deal with things much better than I do because I just get a potty mouth and scream and shout, and I just lose my shit and they're able to to handle it in much more constructive ways, which, like you say, that gives us a degree of power in terms of this thing that we feel so powerless against, because I think whether you write from a place of rage or whether you write from a place of fear. These are the things that we feel overwhelmed by and that are completely out of our control. And so, like you say, it's a way of taking it back. It's a form of therapy. I wrote a short story, an audible original called The Prin Viper, which was a dystopian future where, once again, men are controlling women's bodies, whether they can have babies or whether they can't have babies and again that was something that has been on my mind for a long time and that worries me is the degree to which we are being controlled so so these are always in our fiction that we can tackle these things right so when you write this i also want to talk about being hopeful in your writing because you did say that these stories are hopeful and these these are important because we don't want to put out trauma porn into the world and have our readers read this stuff and be like, what's the point? There's no point. Why do we even recycle? I'm just going to give up right now. So how do we confront our fears and our rage while still having an element of hope in the story? So that's my favorite thing to talk about is hope in dark places, because my books,
2: all of them have dark premises, but my characters have hope in them because I do. And I, I think, especially when you when you were thinking about climate crisis or, or really anything, but for me, I'm always thinking about climate crisis. There's a lot of things to be distraught about, to be sad about, angry about, to grieve. We're losing species every day. And, and that's just the hard truth. I can't sugarcoat that. I can't hope away the fact that we've lost so many species already and that the trajectory we're on, we're gonna lose more. But I don't wanna give into the paralysis of only feeling grief and anger and sadness because once we let those emotions be the only emotions we feel, what do we have to, why we don't fight anymore. We don't look up, like, look up. Like if you, if we're losing your favorite bird, what is another bird you love and protect that one. So like, if you're, if you're a bird watcher, it's an easy example to give and you have a bird feeder in your yard and you have 20 birds that show up there every year and you feed them and you care for them and you wait for them to return every year and you love these birds. And when you're only you know, 15 birds come back, you could be trapped in your own grief of mourning the 15 birds that didn't come back. Or you can look at those five amazing birds that did come back and acknowledge how beautiful they are and fight to protect them. And I think it's really easy to get lost in the, in the anger and grief and not look up at what is still very beautiful in this world. So I think my characters in all of my books, they're living in a very difficult moment, in a very dark moment, all of them. But they also see a sliver of light coming through and, and they they walk towards that light. Like they don't give up on hope. And I don't think it's a Pollyanna kind of hope. I don't think it's an irrational hope because none of them are pretending. And I also myself personally, I'm not pretending these things aren't real, but I am. I want to always acknowledge that there's still good left to fight for. And I think that I hope is the thing my readers take away from all of my books that there's darkness, but in the darkness, look for the light. That's how I live. And I want my characters to live.
0: Yeah. I love what you said there about paralysis, because I remember sort of, I don't know, about 14 years ago when I was volunteering in Soweto in South Africa with HIV, AIDS orphans and their caregivers. Actually, it was longer than that. It was 20 years ago. This is when children in South Africa were living to the age of two, with HIV, if they were lucky, because this was before antiretrovirals. And I remember people saying, what's the point? These children are all dying. So what's the point of being there and doing anything? Because it's so overwhelming. And I remember thinking you can become paralyzed by how little impact you feel like you are making on the bigger picture. But there are always one or two or three lives that you are impacting in that kind of scenario. You are changing those grandmothers' lives and you are changing those families' lives and those things have a ripple effect. So I really do love what you've you've said there about not letting paralysis stop you from doing anything. Right. So can we talk about some other writers who are also writing about their fears and some titles that you'd recommend that are doing this for any of our listeners who are wanting to do the same thing? Yeah, I have some great examples
2: So one of my favorite ones to talk about is a book called The Kindest Lie by Nancy Johnson. It came out in 2021. Nancy is a Black woman from Chicago, and she writes this really beautiful, moving story that you just fall in love with the characters. And it's set at the dawn of the Obama administration, and it's about kind of the limits of hope and the the limitlessness of hope, I guess. And it takes place in this kind of a dying factory town where there is a lot of racial tension um, and there's a, a young boy in the book named Corey. He's an 11-year-old Black boy. And he has a lot of privilege in his life that he has You know, a really wonderful parents. He's in kind a of middle-class life, parents who love him, and a lot of opportunity. But there's a scene in the book where police approach him thinking he has a gun. I'm not going to tell you whether he really does or not, because I want you to read the book. And it's all those privileges disappear because he's a Black boy. And for Nancy, I've, I've spoken with her. She's a good friend of mine, just a beautiful writer. And you know, she talks about how, you know, that she is Corey in some ways, that she feels she's a successful career person. She's a successful author and has a lot of privilege herself, but she's always black and always fears that there would be violence because people see that first. And so she was giving that fear to Corey. And playing out, like imagining how that would play out if it was her in that situation. And that's her biggest fear. And it's, it's so beautifully drawn because for one thing, Corey's not the main character in the story. He's a very important character, but he's a character we really love. And we really care about him and his family. And um, so when he's in this situation, we have grown to love him and care about him. And when we see him at risk we all feel that fear in a different way. I'm not claiming that I feel it the same way that a black child might feel or a black mother might feel in that situation, but I felt his fear. And Nancy was sharing that fear with her readers, but also working through her own fear in a way of playing out that scenario. And it's really beautifully done. So I highly recommend The Kindest Lie if you haven't read it. And then another book that it hasn't come out yet, that I was lucky enough to get an arc from. It's called The Night Flowers by Sarah Herkenrother. And it, Sarah is a breast cancer survivor. And she and I have talked about this, about how one of her main characters is a breast cancer survivor. But she couldn't write her fear in this story until long after she was you know, in, in remission. Like she couldn't go there because the fear was still so present in her. And she talks about how when she was going through treatment, it was really serious that she refused to let her own hair grow out until she was certain she was okay, that she didn't want to go through it again. And when she wrote the story, she gave her character a lot of the fears and worked through the fears that she had worked through, but some of them she couldn't even approach, which I found really interesting that she did not give her character a spouse or a child because she couldn't bear the thought of creating a character that was emotionally trying to navigate what the world would look like if they lost her. If the, I mean, this is like really powerful stuff. And when we, when we give our characters our own fears, I think it comes across on the page really poignantly because it's, we are, we are them in some ways, and we are, we are writing very real things that we have felt, we're not even imagining them. And so I, I'm not suggesting that writers can't imagine other people's situations, but when we really live them, I think it adds a power to our writing. So The Night Flowers by Sarah Rother. it's coming out from Tin House, and it's a, it's a stunner. And I think that she's a debut author that I think we're gonna be talking a lot about. And I think that that fear she puts in there of her medical history, and she's and she's doing well now, by the way, that I think it was just a real gift that she shared that with us.
0: Yeah, those those sound amazing. Adding them to, to my to-be-read pile. But I love, Julie, that you're also working in the adult space while talking about climate change in books that are still entertaining, etc. Because there is not one young person I know who is not really anxious about climate change, about the future of it. And yet there seem to be so many adults with their head in the sand, who are just like, la, 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 not my problem. And I'm like, but you have five children. It's like, I don't even have children. I'm not passing this planet on to anybody. And I am super concerned about this. And there seems to be this thing with people that one, it's like, well, it doesn't affect me, so it's not my problem, which is why I think a lot of people don't care about racism or homophobia. But, you know, climate change is going to affect us all. Like it doesn't matter who you are, your socioeconomic standing, et cetera. So it is something people should care about more. And I feel like when you're writing about it in a way that is still entertaining, because what you are not doing is banging people over the head with this agenda that you have come with. You are still entertaining them, but they are still absorbing through reading something, something that is so incredibly important and that is going to make them think. And that is something, especially about fiction, that I love, that when I read something and it broadens my understanding of the world and it it makes me more interested in it. Have you had readers who reach out to you with this kind of feedback?
2: Yeah, I love that you brought this up because I think you're very right that it always needs to be the story and the characters first. If you have a message or something you're trying to convey, that needs to be in the background because nobody wants to be reading a book and having the author wagging their finger at you and sitting standing on a soapbox but my characters i want their their emotional lives and their relationships to be the thing that you care about most in my stories i want you to be propulsively turning the page because you're so engaged in the plot but in the meantime all that background seeping into your psyche i had a, um, a situation with a waiting for the night song where i had a reviewer post a review. It wasn't one of the big trade reviews as a blogger. And it she started out the review saying something to the effect of, I don't really pay much attention to climate change. And I, you know, I don't get involved in politics. And I was like, okay, this is going to be a rough review because that's what my book has a lot about. And she said, but I really loved the characters in the story and I cared about them so i cared about what they cared about and by the time i got to the end of the book i think differently about climate change now and that is like the golden ticket right there if you can get a, people to care about your characters so much that they care about what your characters care about which in turn is what i care about that's when you can actually affect change if you get the, if you if you enter the space trying to affect change like saying here's some information for you that, nobody wants that like nobody needs that. they come to fiction like you said to be entertained to to enjoy a story to fall in love with people and there's be invested in their lives and another funny story when I, I did a, a book club zoom book club meeting for waiting for the night song and I got a lot of pushback from some of the members of the book club and they one of them asked me you know was your publisher upset that you included so much controversial stuff in the book and i was like well, "What? what's controversial in that book and they said well not everybody agrees climate change is real and i was like "Hmm." well i disagree with you about that and i tried to gently say you know i don't think this is not my publisher did not find that controversial and i also have some immigration storylines in that book and they also pushed back saying, not everybody feels the same way about immigrants in this country. And I was like, okay, so I, 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 you, know, you don't want to start an argument with your readers, but you also don't want to back down. So I would gently said what I think and that my, my publisher was supportive. So at the end of the book club, I really had this vibe that they didn't love the book because they didn't like some of you know my own personal political positions. But at the end they said are you working on anything else and i was like well i have this new book called the last beekeeper it's coming out next year i tell them what it's about and they're like wow that sounds amazing will you come back to our book club and i was really surprised and what it was is they were talking about it maybe they didn't agree with me but they were having conversations about the things my characters were having conversations and maybe it did move them a little bit. So it's a fine line. You don't want to be preaching to your readers, but I also will never back down on what I believe in. So it's a tough balancing act sometimes.
0: Yeah, I love that. I remember with my first two novels, which are about racism in South Africa, I spoke to a ton of book clubs. And I remember someone wrote this sort of nasty review on Amazon about my book and said, Oh my God, I bet you this author just speaks to a bunch of racist, privileged white women all the time in her book clubs. And I was like, who else should I be speaking to about racism? right? Because if I get to speak to those people constantly about racism, maybe I'm exacting some some kind of change and some kind of thinking in the world. And that was meant as an insult, but I took it as a huge compliment. So for the writers out there, don't let anybody tell you that your writing doesn't matter. Books change lives. They save lives every single day. So bum in the chair because you may think that what you're
1: doing doesn't matter. I can promise you The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys, that's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone, for 50% off, this is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD15 P O at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Today's guest is based
0: in the southeastern corner of Australia, not far from Melbourne. When she's not writing, she's either working her day job as a police officer or pandering to the whims of her four small children. It's my pleasure to welcome karen main karen welcome to the show thank you so much for having me on i'm so excited we're thrilled to be chatting with you today so before we dive into the questions karen can you just give our listeners a bit of an overview in terms of what lenny marx gets away with murder is about
3: I would love to. So Lenny Marks Gets Away With Murder is a crime fiction novel set in Melbourne, which is where I live, about a school teacher called Lenny Marks who is living a very routine, very structured life and not very keen on changing any of it. She gets a letter from the parole office delivered to her and that tells her that her stepfather is about to be released on parole. She hasn't seen him for 20 years and she remembers him and her mother abandoning her when she was 12. And that's the last thing she remembers of him. So this starts to trigger some memories and things that are going on. And at the same time, she's been issued a challenge by her foster mother, which is essentially that it's time to get a life because she is missing out on a lot of things with her isolated lifestyle that she's living. So those two things combine and things start to get a bit crazy for Lenny. So so her very structured life
0: gets very unstructured. I love that in terms of conflict, because remember for our listeners, internal conflict is as important as external conflict. So you need your character to be at odds with other characters in the story. But for a control freak who really likes their life to be structured, the minute their life kind of gets out of their control, it's a huge source of inner conflict. And I say this as a certified control freak. So I feel her pain. Just before we carry on here, Karen, I'm seeing a trend in terms of book names we see this often in terms of sort of book covers and book names. And in terms of titles, we lately are seeing a lot where the character's full name is in the title. Is this something you pitched it as, or is this something your publisher changed your title to? So it's a bit of a
3: funny story about the title. And as my debut book, and I'm sure a lot of authors would know, you you don't necessarily get the the final say in your, in your title. So I pitched it with her full name in it, but it was the almost truths of Lenny Marks, because she misremembers things. And I thought that's a bit quirky, that's a bit fun. And I'm always drawn to a cover or a book that's got the name of the character in the title. But then you're so right, I've seen so many of them lately. And so when it went to Penguin here in Australia, and my editor said to me, just not sure about the title, there's a lot out at the moment that have got names in it. And I went, cool, well, let's, let's workshop some stuff. So she had some ideas and I had some ideas and she she then came back to me with Lenny Mark's Gets Away with Murder. And I said, but it's still got her name in it. Uh, anyway, so we, we went backwards and forwards with that. And I was a little bit concerned with the title only because as a police officer, I didn't want to make it look like I was, I don't know, giving away state secrets or writing a how-to guide. I don't have state secrets. It's certainly not a how-to guide. But, yeah, it sort of didn't sit well with me, the title. And then we came sort of full circle on it. And she, she called it metaphorically bludgeoning me into accepting the title name. And I'm okay with that because I actually love it now. But yeah, at the time I was a little bit loved the name in it, but I think the gets away with murder bit, it was almost too bold or I don't know, it was too too upfront a choice for me when I was thinking all these quirky little, you know, titles and things in my mind. So love it now.
0: Yeah, it certainly grabs your attention. And there's a few other titles at the moment that do pretty much say, you know, so and so's advice for getting away with murder murder or how to get away with murder and there's the TV show how to get away with murder yeah i think i think it's great very very striking cover and, you know, love the title, but I just laugh that <laughs> it's like, no, there's too many with the character's name in it, but we're still going to keep the character's name in it. So for those of you listening, there might come a point when you sell your novel, when you are going to sit brainstorming literally hundreds of title names with your editor and with your sales team and your publicists. So don't become too attached to the name that you submit under or the title you submit under and, and definitely have backups and be prepared for that to become something you need to do. So two things here, Karen. One is you were published directly via Penguin Random House, which is something that's possible to do in Australia without needing an agent. So I'm going to ask you to take us through that. But then I'm also going to ask, would you share that query letter with our Kofi subscribers? Is it something you'd be prepared to share? Because they always love seeing query letters that were successful, if you still have that floating around somewhere.
3: My version control of things is terrible, but I'm pretty sure I've got the query letter and I would be happy to share that because... Honestly, having a look at other people's query letters is absolutely what made me understand the whole nuts and bolts of it. You can listen to all you want about it, but actually seeing seeing how it looks. And especially when you've read a book or if you know the story of the book, because all of a sudden you realise the amount of things that are not said in a query letter as well. Anyway, that's a bit off topic there. But yeah, so I had the very good luck which came with a bit of hard work to get published directly with Penguin Random House here in Australia and being based in Australia, that obviously makes sense. So I'll give you the the short version. So This is the second book I've written, but the first book I've published. The first book I queried, put that out on submission and largely to international agents. So I sent it to UK and the US in the larger sort of part. And I did have a couple of Australian agents on my list, but there's just not as many of them because the industry works a little bit different in Australia. And And I had about I think, 70 no's. So after about 70 no's, and I'd steeled myself quite well because I think I got so resilient to being told no that I just didn't expect anyone to say yes. And I just thought, well, what does it matter then? I'll just keep on querying. And then when I got on to, when I'd written this book, which was what I was doing while I was querying, I just... It, it became an easier thing to do just to put the book out there because I thought, well, they'll tell me no and I'll move on to the next one and I'll rejig my query letter. But somebody said yes, amazingly. So to get it in the hands of the publisher and they do accept unsolicited submissions. Um, but I was lucky enough to have done a mentoring course with an author who I'd met through another author, and I don't have a lot of author friends, but it, it was sort of a, this had sort of lined up in that way. I now grab onto the authors that I meet quite firmly and probably scare them a bit because I I get a bit uh, fangirly on them when I see them. Author events are my rock concerts. So I was lucky enough that she, in this mentoring group, she read the first chapter, I think it was, of it and just gave everybody some feedback. And she'd said to me, oh, I've heard from this other author friend of ours that she's read it and loved it. Can I read the whole thing? I think my editor might be interested in it. And she was at Penguin Random House. So she, so of course I did. I couldn't get it to her fast enough. She read the manuscript and said, yeah, I, I think you should send it to her. I've told her about it. She thinks it sounds great. And so I got the joy of sending it to Penguin Random House, but with the the subject email line saying referral from and put the author's name in there just so that it could jump out of the slush pile a little bit. So, and at the same time, while well, I'd done that because fully expecting, well, you know, it's lovely. I also always think people are just being... Nice. <laughs> like I thought. Well, that's lovely that you say that. It's because I did your course, and you know, I'll, I'll keep reading your books. Don't worry, you don't have to put me forward to your editor. I now realise for her how unusual it was that that that's how that went down. So I'd also submitted a little batch of queries out to agents as well. So I was sort of just in that holding pattern of of waiting, but sort of, I think it was about, it was only within two or three weeks. I got a, an email from the editor that had read it. And she said she dipped her toe in it over the weekend. And it was completely different to what she'd expected because she had something in her mind for, what this crime novel a police officer would have written would be which would be very you know heavy on the police procedural and you know that sort of thing and and it's not it's it's not that's not the story at all the police come in I think about page 275 or something and they're rather unremarkable (laughs) so she said uh, she had a chat with me and, and and we went from there so I took it through their acquisition meeting and they picked it up as one of their debuts and so that was within and so it was a year. So I, I'd signed with them on in March last year. And then it came out actually just like late, late Feb this year.
0: Wow. And that's really fast because we, you know, we see, we say on the podcast all the time, it's generally sort of 18 months to two years. So it's wonderful when they manage to do that quite quickly. But now you've since signed with an agent without even having a second full manuscript, but because you had an offer from the second book. Can you also tell us how that works?
3: Yes. So uh, much to my delight, one of the agents that I'd queried in that batch when I was waiting to hear back about Lenny Marks being on submission with this publisher had emailed me but she emailed me about two months after that submission uh, after I, I queried her and at that point I'd already sold the book so I'd sold it to Penguin Random House and I was quite heavily pregnant with twins at the time and was not of in the state of mind to be looking for agents for worldwide rights and stuff like that so I just gave them everything I just went you know you guys are you're a big publishing house take it take it all I'm just going to sit over here and edit And have these twins and do other things and type the next book so when she got back to me I'd already sold the book and I emailed her back pretty much just laying it out in that in that manner you know thanks for getting back to me you know um but I've sold the book but still looking for representation because I thought it's funny actually after listening to your podcast religiously I feel it sounds so stupid I feel like agents I feel like they're people And I know that sounds silly, but I just went, well, you know, listening to Carly and Cece talk about the queries that, They get that sort of, you know, like they're open. The way they speak about it, you know, there's conversations in there that they're open to having and that sort of thing. And and so it just made I think that this part of the process easier. I don't know what I would have replied with had I not sort of had all those podcasts under my belt. So anyway, she said, "Look, I love your writing. When you've got a second book, let me know." And I so I was madly writing that with newborn twins. That's fun, (laughs) and by that I mean not fun at all. And I got a offer from my publisher from Penguin after they asked me what that book was and I pitched them just my synopsis, which is horrible to write. And she said, look, we'd love to, you know, offer for your next book as well and just have that on the go. And which was a dream come true because I hadn't even written it and they were putting this faith in me. And that's when I got back to this agent. And said, so she's a US based agent. And she said, Yeah, let's have a conversation about it. And we did. And I was open with my publisher about it and just said, for my my own career and longevity, I actually always thought I'd be or I really wanted to seek an agent, but then I'm also not planning on saying no to your offer. But I just thought I was in that sort of limbo point of not having a manuscript. And I thought, well, what do I what do I send to a to an agent? They're just gonna think that's a bit silly. So because this the door was open with this woman in in a fashion, I, I emailed her and then we had a bit of a email to and fro about it. And the day the book was released here is the day I signed up with her. So it was all a really nice it was a really big day, actually, as it turns out, to be signed on with an agent plus my book actually appearing in shops. So it
0: all it all turned out fantastically. Yeah, geez, talk about a really, really good day. So, in terms of your agent, because now you published in Australia, but Lenny Marks Gets Away with Murder is not available, you know, in in North America, etc. So, is this kind of now where your focus is going to be in terms of getting your books? out in in the wider market and has your agent said to you in any way especially since your agent's in the us has your agent gone well karen you need to not just be writing about australia because maybe books that are based in Australia will only be published in Australia or is she not concerned about that at all?
3: Yeah so she has actually got the U.S. rights to Lenny Marks now which is fantastic because that makes me think not that it wasn't in good hands I don't want to say that it wasn't with Penguin but I just because she's based in the U.S. I think great take it run with it spread, spread it around get her out there so that would be really nice because obviously it's such a big market and uh, Australia has quite a small market so as as thrilling as it is to be published here to think about having a a career as an author where it's something that I could not still be doing other part-time you know hustle on the side I yet need to you know need the agent on board and I need to get international I guess and also what a thrill like that would just be so fantastic she has not said anything about making it more marketable in any particular way to an American audience and I don't know I have heard from different authors in Australia that they've Set things in different settings, or they have, especially if they've been published in both places, that they've got an Americanized version of their book. And I don't, I've, I've never gone into detail with them of what that consists of, or if it's a location change, or if it's just some of the terminology. And we've got Kmart, we don't have Walmart, and you know things like that. But then at the same time, I guess, like I read a lot, and I read you know international authors and don't expect you, you kind of get the vibe of things without it being spelt out to you so I'm hoping that you know if there's if if it's a good enough story and good enough in the writing then that it's um you know have universal appeal hopefully.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And, you know, I love hearing these stories because it's so frustrating when we keep sort of hearing that, oh, the characters must be American, the setting must be a popular US city. And for me, you know, I'm kind of bored of those stories. I want to be reading about people in Australia and people in countries that I don't normally read about. So so we're going to be over here cheering you on and hoping that you have huge success with that and that you don't need to change any of that, because, you know, to a large extent, you're writing what you know, and that is living in Australia. And certainly, you know, I know with my first two books that were based in South Africa, there were contextualized things that I had to put in the book because Americans wouldn't know what the hell tackies are. They wouldn't know that those are sneakers. So I had to, when I wrote about tackies, had to make clear that a kid was lacing them up on their feet so that they would understand, oh, okay, that's a sneaker. But it's still highly possible, you know, to do that. Something I want to chat to you about is what you said earlier, is that you're a police officer, right? So i mean a police officer with four kids. I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing with my life? I haven't had time to write in the last three weeks just because the podcast keeps me so busy and you've got four children, you're a police officer and you're writing. But anyway, let's talk about writing in the genre you also work in. So it is a bit hectic around here as well for different reasons to yours, I
3: guess, with the four kids. And I've had the luck of not. So I've had almost, by the time I go back to work, I'll have had almost a year off on maternity leave with the kids. But it's also when I find my little niches of time to write as well, which is very handy, maternity leave doesn't mean I'm gonna keep having children in order to keep writing. I've I'm four and out. So we're we're done now. Yeah, so writing it's funny. So the obviously, you know, people say write what you know, which I don't think is necessarily the best advice. And I don't think people should get bogged down by that because otherwise we'd all be writing memoir, I guess, to some extent. But so the first book I wrote that I submitted out and got all the no's for taught me how to write a book, showed me that I could, showed me that I had the ability to, you know, Keep at it, I think, more than anything. But it was also a police procedural. So it was very, very different to Lenny Marks, which is crime, but. I like to use the term crime adjacent because although it's about things that have happened to her and there are crimes throughout the book, it's not the focus of it. The focus is more the character and her life and the hope around what she's doing. So writing The Police Procedural, what I think I learned from that, writing in the same genre I work in, is that I have trouble stepping away from the reality of it. So unfortunately, it can be really boring being a police officer it can be really fun and really you know tragic and and everything it's got all the emotions but it is largely paperwork once you're a detective so a little bit of action lots of paperwork i don't think that would be a shock to most people but it certainly doesn't necessarily make for compelling reading so I look back at that first book that I wrote and I think I'd made it like I really tried to ground it in reality and I wanted it to be I didn't want to sensationalize it you know sensationalize crime or anything like that so I made it as reality-based as I could essentially and I think it made it a little bit boring. Now if this book goes on to get published I want to take this all back and say it's actually really good but I think my niche or like I think I really found my stride writing about non-police related like the without the police at the core so writing about lenny marks and she's a school teacher i've never been a school teacher i know a couple of school teachers so i asked them you know for a few of the little the intricacies of it as you do and they and perhaps they're horrified that i'm so inaccurate with it but i was okay with that because i couldn't be inaccurate with the police stuff but I can with other things so there's something I think about my very rule focused procedure driven self and I know that about myself but I can't step away from it enough now to you know write something where people are sliding into rooms with guns drawn and you know getting their sort of diehard with a vengeance on so I'll keep writing about
0: occupations and worlds I don't inhabit I think that's that's works best for me. Yeah, it's interesting what you said, that writing what you know would be memoir, because I think of memoir as the opposite. I think people write memoir because they don't know what the hell happened to them, and they're actually trying to figure it out. Yeah, so so it's interesting how we look at that. But also, I think this is why we're seeing more and more emergence of books like The Thursday Murder Club where you have a group of seniors solving crime because they don't need to get bogged down in the police procedural. And while in the Thursday Murder Club, there are police officers in there, you know, they, they're kind of more of a hindrance to these older people solving the crimes than what they are actually helping. Yeah, it's, it's great how you can write in that genre, but not, you know, need to work in that genre or even see that kind of as an impediment to that. Right. Our last question that we have time for, Karen, is you've said that you didn't have a writing group or you still don't have a writing group. And you actually think that that helped you in the beginning. And that's really interesting because, you know, I've said a lot on the podcast how helpful to me my writing groups have been, how helpful my beta readers have been, etc. But, you know, the most important thing is, is that there is no one size fits all. Some people are largely helped by writing groups. Other people find them daunting and they find the feedback to be confusing. And they actually find it that it's, you know, it makes them write slower or worse, or it makes them want to give up. So I'm really interested to hear your take on that. So I think you covered off on a
3: few things there. Firstly, Thursday Murder Club, what a fantastic series of books. And God, I wish I'd have had, have had that idea first, but now it's gone. So I'll think of another one. So writing groups, I can completely see why people are drawn to them and like them. And certainly for the like-minded people, because I think that explaining book stuff to anybody that's not a little bit in book world, is a lot of it gets lost, especially anything to do with editing, submitting, querying, or, or how you can... S- stare at your screen for eight hours and and still not have completed your novel, that it doesn't work that easy. So I think for me it was a very solo pursuit and I wrote – with the doors closed, as I think Stephen King describes in his book, not comparing myself to Stephen King, but that's just the way I did it. And I think if I had have had people to check in on my progress or see how I was going or have to, or, or feel in a position where I had to share part of that story, I just don't think I could have. I think it would have scared me off. And I think getting any feedback that I construed as negative in those early stages would have derailed the whole project so completely that I probably just would have given up or not gone back to it and I know I was very sensitive about it but that but I knew that about myself so I I sort of kept the doors closed but also because of time so when I wrote Lenny Marks I had two small children and so I was on maternity leave with my son and we were going into the thing that shall not be mentioned which is the pandemic but we had a lot of lockdowns in Melbourne so we actually had a curfew we weren't allowed outside five kilometers from our house really heavy restrictions obviously you know with the public in mind to keep them safe so I didn't see anybody my husband is also a police officer so he went to work I was at home with two kids who couldn't go to childcare because I was at home and so all I did was write in sorry I looked after my children. I <laughs> I kept everybody alive and I wrote my book in the in the pockets of time. So I think by not you know, seeking out, you know, a writer's group or anything like that. And I probably could have found one online. I sort of really learned this solo writing thing and love doing it. And now when I sort of ever do anything with a group or have, you know, jumped on one of the online sessions where everybody's writing and stuff, I get a bit distracted. Like there's too many things going on for me. So yeah, I can completely see the benefit to them. And I now love having writer friends and writer people in my life. And we'll probably hit them up for some reading at some point in the future. But yeah, absolutely loved just getting inside my own head, getting it down on the page and then and then seeing what I came up with.
0: I love that. And I love what you said there about the self-knowledge. You know, if you know that you are going to be sensitive, critique or criticism early on, then definitely guard against that. I think for each writer the most important thing is is to kind of understand yourself as a person, understand what you're open to, what your threshold for this is, and you know, if writing groups work for you, great. And if they don't then That's also great. The most important thing is to know what's available to you and then decide, you know, which way you're going to go and which resources you're going to capitalize on. That's the most important thing. Karen, it's been so lovely chatting with you. We are keeping everything crossed that we get to see Lenny Marks Gets Away With Murder here in North America. And we wish you much luck with the second book as well. Thank you
3: so much. I've so enjoyed actually being on your podcast after listening to it time and time and time again.
0: And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup